Hello, beautiful people. I am so, so excited to bring you guys this episode because this one is with Polina Marinova Pompliano. And what I love about Polina is there's so many similarities between what she does and what I do. And it was a great way for me to uncover some of the tricks of the trade. She's been doing it much longer. She's worked for Fortune Magazine. Now she works on her own at The Profile. And so in this conversation, we spoke and had a wide-ranging conversation about everything from her first job as a babysitter to research methods that she uses to habits that are important in her own life as well as some of the craziest things happening, like The Rock sharing her work on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Overall, I love this conversation. I'm so grateful for Polina and so grateful for her sharing her wisdom today. If you enjoyed this episode or have any thoughts about it, let me know on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda. And if you'd like to access the video version of this podcast, check out the YouTube. That's youtube.com slash Danny Miranda, and you should find the video version up there. So looking forward to your thoughts on all of that. Thank you for listening, and let's get to the interview with Polina Marinova Pompliano. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. First of all, Polina, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited, Danny. Thank you for yeah. having me. So one of the things that you've said before, or that someone you worked for has said before, Patty Sellers used to ask people, what was your very first job? So I figured that'd be a great place to start for this interview as well. That's awesome. Okay. So (laughs) this is really funny. Um, My very first job, I would say, but like outside of like babysitting, because I feel like everybody does that. Um, My mom used to work at a childcare center when I was in high school and uh, she did like the admin stuff like that. She was one of the the operators there. Um, But I was for a long time until I think until then, I thought I wanted to work with children and I I wanted to be like um, a social worker. So one summer I was home in high school. Also, I don't know how, like this, is this legal? I have no idea, but I was like, Hey, I would love to come like shadow someone or like work at the childcare. Cause like, this is what I want to do. And, um, and she was like, all right, I'll take you to work with me. And she, um, uh, paired me with one of the teachers there. Uh, and I worked with like three-year-olds, uh, for a whole summer And honestly, like it was, it was amazing because I mean, also now thinking these kids are like 18 years old blows my mind or probably older. Oh my God. But, um, it was really cool to see, but I was so exhausted that for my lunch break every day, I would like fall asleep in the car. I was like, Whoa, this is, this is crazy. Um, but it was just a really eye opening experience to, I think, to me. Uh, and then it evolved and I wanted to work in journalism and cover education. I just think education is such an important part of society. And the fact that we're severely underpaying teachers is just mind boggling to me, but that was an eye opening experience of like, Hey, like it really matters who your children interact with at such a young age, because that really does help shape them later. When did you make the transition and realize, okay, I'm going to work in journalism now. Yeah. Well, I was, so because I I was in high school during this whole period, um, and 
I mean, I liked, I liked that, but then my friend was like, Hey, there's this elective, we can join the newspaper club. And I was like, sure. Because I was not talented in any other way. I, the other electives were like art and chorus and band. And I was like, I don't have any of those skills and I'm not about to start learning. I like, I like writing. So let me just join the the nerdiest one of them all, the newspaper. Um, So that opened my eyes to like, there's this whole world. And I was a pretty introverted kid, um, but you give me a pen and a notepad and like it allowed me to walk up to anybody and ask them questions. And it gave me this confidence. And I was like, wow, like this is pretty cool. And it paired my love for research and writing. Um, so that's, I went down that path. You mentioned so many things that I, I want to break off into. The first one is research. Um, one of the things that you do so well is you research people. And part of the things that I have to do for this show is research people. So I'm curious, how have you, what are your best research methods and how do you really get to know someone without ever actually meeting them in preparation for them or just to research them in general? Yeah, I, I think the, the whole aspect of research is so fascinating because everybody uh, that I know in terms of other reporters have such a different method, right? So for me, before I talk to somebody, before I interview them or anything, during my research phase, I try to find every profile that they've ever been featured in, um, every interview they've done, video interview, podcast, documentary, I want to see it all other reporters prefer to go in it kind of blind. They don't want to see like other um, work that they've done because they're afraid that'll kind of like go into their brain and they'll do the same. But for me, it's like, I want to know because you can learn a lot from watching somebody, right? Like from observing somebody, even in a video interview, how they sit, do they use their, I'm, I'm a person who uses my hands a lot to express myself. Other people just like stand like this and they're very stoic. It, it, those little cues tell you a lot about a person and how they view the world. The other thing that I notice in delving deep and all this stuff is okay, I pay attention to the things they say over and over and over again. And I mentioned before, but I did a, a deep dive on Chris Jenner. And I didn't know too much about her before that. But once you start picking up on the things she repeats over and over and over again, you're like, oh, that's why you see the world that way. Um, she, she, I heard her say more than three times to people who were interviewing her, she said she realized early on in her career that uh, if you're talking to someone and they say no, then you're talking to the wrong person. That's a really interesting conclusion to draw. Uh, for me, it'd be like, oh, maybe I don't like rejection, so I'm not going to pursue that. For her, it was more motivating. Um, so for my research, like I try to observe the person, literally embody that person. I don't know if this happens to you when you research somebody, but I try to start seeing the world through their eyes. I think a lot of actors do this when they're studying for a role. Um, Sometimes I'll disagree with like Chris Jenner. I have nothing in common with her until I was like, wow, like what if I saw the world this way? What if I applied this technique that she's applying? Like, could I do things differently? So certain ideas stick with you. And that's what I find fascinating in that stage. And also if you actually do get a chance to interview the person by looking at everything they've ever done, you try to ask questions they haven't been asked before. So if I'm interviewing someone and I ask them something and they stop and they have to think about it. I'm like, yes, because it's, it's not in their talk track. Yeah. It's the best feeling as an interviewer when someone's like, oh, that's a new question. But it sounds like from your research method that empathy plays such a critical role because you need to put yourself in their shoes. So what are some of the ways that you try to build empathy? Ooh, speaking of good questions, <laughs> um, Empathy is one of those things. I've always been an empathetic person, probably to a fault. Like I can't, I can't see a homeless person and not stop and give them money or literally in New York, I, there was this woman and I kept buying groceries for her. I just, I know it's such a fine line of one day you have a job, the next day you don't. One day you get caught doing something that most people get off of, but for other people, they go straight to jail. I think, uh, I, I just, I, I don't know. I could see that happening to me or the people close to me. So I always try to keep that in mind. But in terms of like developing empathy, I think that's such an interesting question. I always say that the 
observation is a superpower. Like I just did a deep dive on Frank Abagnale, who was uh, a con man, a reformed con man who then went to work for the FBI. He was uh, portrayed in the film, Catch Me If You Can. And he talks about like, when you see two people on the street and they're both dressed in a suit and tie, he's like, to you and me, we'd be like, oh yes, just some, you know, professionals on the street corner. And he's like, I can tell one of them's a police officer and the other one's a drug dealer. Just based on little cues, their body language, their facial expressions, um, you need to be able to observe. And I think a lot of times people talk about this idea of an alter ego, right? So Beyonce had Sasha Fierce because Beyonce was very introverted, but she needed to be confident on stage. Kobe Bryant at the lowest moment in his career, he was booed on the court. So he was like, I'm now the black mamba. So I come not as Kobe, but as this like other entity, it puts distance between you and like your alter ego, but the idea of people are like, okay, but how can I, how can I embody somebody that I aspire to be? Or how can I have empathy for someone? Observation, sit down, watch how they behave, how they interact with other people, how they, um, you know, sit down to do an interview. And maybe you notice that, uh, they back channel a lot what you're doing right now, nodding your head and say, mm-hmm. like, those are things that make me think you're listening or they sit up straight when they're in an interview like that exudes confidence. After you observe people enough, you start to um, apply it in your own life. The things that you aspire to be, I aspire to be more confident. Therefore, maybe I will stand up a little bit straighter. And I think that's how you develop the muscle of empathy is like, if you want to understand how somebody else lives and views the world, try to observe them and understand their lens and, and how they, um, they interact with other humans and the reasons why they do that. Does that make sense? <laughs> 100%. Have you embodied that level of alter ego in your own life at all? Um, okay. So this is... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but um, when I first moved to New York in 2014, I was wildly insecure about myself in terms of where I was at that point in my life. I was surrounded by my friends who had recently graduated from college. I graduated in 2013. Now looking back, I'm like, maybe I should have had a little bit more patience with myself. But at that point in time, I was like, oh my God, I'm not doing enough. I'm not making enough money. Everybody around me is working in finance and whatever, making a killing. And I'm here working at a startup, like barely able to pay my rent. Um, what am I doing wrong? And so this is kind of where my love for studying people came in. I went down a really deep rabbit hole on Sarah Blakely. And I mean, she, I, I, I felt like she was in a similar position with how I felt. She was selling fax machines door to door. Like that's not what she wanted to do with her life. She knew there was more potential for her. Um, so she started working on space, but the more that I read about her, the more that I like watched interviews with her, I was like, Oh, like, it's okay that you feel this way, but there are ways to counteract it. So Sarah Blakely talks about how before a big meeting, she would go in the bathroom and like power pose and try to get in the right mindset before entering the meeting. So I definitely did that uh, before I had my interview at Fortune magazine. And it wasn't so much like, you know, it's like a woo woo thing. It's like, I need to make sure that I'm in the right mindset to show up as me and not somebody who's like, I'm so nervous and I'm so happy to be here because so many of us do that. If you show up confident and yourself, you're so much more likely to get the job, even if you're not as qualified as somebody else who's super nervous. I love how you use someone who had succeeded and someone who it went on to create Spanx and everything and use that as a way to embody yourself in that moment because role models can be all around us. And we oh, just yeah. we need to look for the internet and we can easily look to the internet or books to find them. So wait, sorry, Dan, just one more thing here. Sorry, uh, before I forget it. I think that a lot of people say, you know, oh, well, I found someone, you know, successful, and I asked them to be my mentor. I didn't have that. And not because like, I couldn't have asked somebody, but just because like, nobody had done what I kind of wanted to do. And I did look 
to people like Sarah Blakely or uh, Patty Sellers at Fortune before I ever knew her, I would watch videos of her interviewing. I was like, wow. Like to me, even though I had never met these people, they were my role models. And Tyler Perry says this, he grew up in a, in a really poor neighborhood with, he hadn't seen a successful businessman who looked like him before. So what he did was, it was like every day I came home from school and I turned on the TV and I watched Oprah. Oprah was his mentor and, and showed him like, hey, there's a path for you too. And he was able to learn from her, even though he had never met her. So I think the power of, like you said, learning, we have the internet, go find somebody whose path you admire, look at how they got there, but also make sure to look at the sacrifices they made and the mistakes they made. Because the, the path definitely isn't always a straight line. So you have to understand, like, maybe if I want to be this big, successful CEO, I might have to make some other sacrifices along the way. And am I okay with that? Who are some of who are some people that you currently today look to as inspiration, if anyone at all? Yeah, no, a lot. Uh, so every every single week when I work on a profile dossier, like I do it from I start with an idea first, like what do I want to learn about, and then I find the best person that I want to learn from. Uh, mm. It's like it's like finding a thing you're curious about and then finding the best teacher to teach you that. Like, for example, I wanted to learn about how people make uh, good decisions in uncertain environments. And I found Annie Duke. Um, I, you know, I wanted to know about um, ownership, like, oh, well, if people underestimate me, but like, you know, and I'm not getting these big opportunities that other people are getting, like, how do I navigate that? Tyler Perry, so many people underestimated him, but that ended up being an advantage for him because he was able to own all of his creative output. Then he became a billionaire because he had ownership of everything. Um, Every week it changes for me, to be honest. Um, This week was um, Stephen Hawking. I I find him so incredible, but he's a perfect example of someone. I'm like, look, he he believed that there was something more planned for him and that he could do more than his like. Uh, what what his physical body looked like or was capable of, he used his mind. At the same time, he had two marriages that ended in divorce. You have to ask yourself, like, why? (laughs) And what were the decisions that this person made to be absolutely brilliant, but maybe his personal life suffered because of that? What else have you learned from Stephen Hawking? You spent so much time on him this week. I figured it might be fresh in your head. Yeah. Um, one, one thing he says is that basically his big breakthrough is that black holes aren't perfectly black. So everybody always thought that like when something goes into a black hole, it's, it, it sucks it in, disappears forever. Uh, it's not true because radiation can actually escape. Heat can escape a black hole. Um, so he used that as a metaphor for life saying that we may have all been in a period of our lives that um, felt like we were swallowed by a black hole. And he, he, his point is everything is always fleeting and even things that get stuck in a black hole can come out, whether it's um, to come out of it or through to go to another like uh, universe or galaxy or universe. Um, (laughs) But, but the whole idea is like, so much of life is so fleeting and everything is so temporary and fluid that thinking that, you know, for him, like he, every year he spent his uh, muscles became more and more paralyzed and he saw his body deteriorating, but his mind was at its peak. So I think it, I, I don't know. I just, I think it's cool to like decouple yourself in how you look in your physical appearance from the potential of your mind. And that's something everybody can do. Yeah. And what's really interesting about what you're doing basically is like you're creating a school for yourself in the sense of you're finding what you're curious about. And then you're like, who could teach me about this? And I think that's such an interesting way to approach life. So one of the things that you've said before is that you were hesitant to have an opinion before, you know, you were hesitant to put yourself out there because you didn't want to rock the boat. But my question is, how did you get over that? Are you talking like early in my life or like yeah. while I was at Fort? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, this has come up for me many, many a time. Uh, so when, when we moved from uh, Bulgaria to the U S I was in elementary school and 
you've been a kid, you know how brutal kids can be because they have no filter. So suddenly when you have a new kid in your class who doesn't speak the language, who's from like a, a different country, who's eating her food weird, you're like, mm, perfect target. <laughs> so I hate, because of that experience, because, um, because people were like, because they, I had so much attention on myself. I moved, I switched schools like in middle school. Cause my parents moved to a new, um, uh, a new area. And so I was like, perfect clean slate. I can start over. Nobody knows who I am. I don't have an accent anymore. Like nobody knows. So I literally started over, but I over rotated in terms of, I started being my idea of perfect. I would say the perfect thing, consensus, like bring it on. I did not want people to find anything weird about me. So, because I didn't want to be the center of attention ever again. Um, that is good except for the fact that you realize yes you have all the friends yes it's fun but inside I feel like a fraud I don't feel like I'm expressing my opinion about things that I should be that I have an opinion on and I became super boring I think I I think in my post I wrote like I worshipped at the altar of conformity just because uh nobody like people who don't have opinions are pretty boring. It's like, if you agree with everything I'm saying, I'm like, Oh, Danny, come on. Like, just tell me like, you're wrong. I disagree. That's what makes life exciting. And that's like fun debates make you think, um, and, and stimulate you intellectually. So, um, I, you know, I think journalism was a good fit for me because it's a formula. When you're a news reporter, I wasn't a columnist. I always wanted to be a news reporter it's a, there's a lead. Then you get into the meat of the story. It's facts, it's quotes. It's never your own voice. Then when I started writing term sheet for fortune, I mean, you have to have a point of view. And at first I did it. And um, people were like, I don't read this for the news. I read this. So you can tell me based on your knowledge of the industry and the people you talk to, what you think about some like, ah, oh, damn, like, I don't want to be doing that, but it helped shape and develop my voice. And I think there's a way to have an opinion where you say, I could be wrong. Please tell me I'm open to feedback rather than I think what we're seeing now in a lot of across a lot of media organizations is this is my point of view. You're wrong. I'm not listening. Whatever you say, I, I stand this moral high ground. And I don't think that that's the formula for a functioning society. Sorry, that's way too much than what you wanted to know. <laughs> <laughs> that's never a bad thing. But from my perspective, it seems like a lot of self-awareness on your part for the way you over-indexed. So where does that self-awareness come from? I think the self-awareness comes from the fact that when I moved here, because I didn't speak the language, I was forced to observe people and pick up on things that other people don't pick up on. I picked up on the back channeling. Like if somebody's agreeing with me, I picked up on uh, if somebody was looking at me weird or um, just these like small body language things that most people don't pay attention to. I think I really do think people who don't speak the language you're forced to do like a full body scan of like, okay, how are they feeling today? Are they about to, you know, talk some shit to me? <laughs> like you, you know, and, and um, you know, who's like a threat and who's not, but those things help you kind of have more social skills and be more self-aware of yourself. Um, because ultimately like, who is it that Chris Voss, I think says this, or is it Paul Ekman? One of them. Uh, when you're so when you're looking at someone and you kind of like see that they are frowning or they're whatever, that person acts as a mirror to you. So what are you saying that is making them react in that way? I think it's such a simple thing, but like during a negotiation, it's very important. Um, and in this self awareness is probably the most important thing for anyone who wants to. Um, build a community or uh, have good relationships. Like it, it's just, it's one of those things that it's not, it's obvious, but few people understand it. You just mentioned community and it's a perfect time for me to ask you about the incredible community you've built with the profile. It It's like, it's crazy because when I saw that you had meetups at bars back before COVID, I was like, that is so cool. And a great way to take the online community in person How'd you get that idea? How'd you create such an incredible community? And talk a little bit about that, please. 
Yeah, I got that idea uh, from Tim Orbin at Wait But Why, except for the fact that when he did it, I think he had like 500,000 people participate. <laughs> and when I did it, I had like a thousand. Um, Still but, so well, cool. It was, it was so cool. So basically what I did was I was like, okay, we have X amount. I think at the time, honestly, I think I only had 10,000 people on the list. So I was like, we have this great community. I talk to you guys every week. I, the, the only common thread among you people and me is that you're just curious, right? Like curious, you want to learn about new things. And I was like, what if (laughs) we just all met up in person uh, and just, you never know. Right. So, so I, I mean, I had like 10 spreadsheets going, but people would tell me where they were and whether they were interested in attending a meetup. And this is again, December of 2019, like right before all the craziness happened. Um, and then, uh, and then I would match them. So San Francisco, here you go. And like London, it was the coolest thing because I got to see pictures from people meeting San Francisco, LA, New York, uh, London, Nairobi, Kenya, India, like it was all over. And even, even though a few of the meetups were like three people, it was just, I was like, I can't believe that there are three people in Nairobi who read the profile, but that's why it's to me, the best place on the internet is the profile in my like inbox, because I get to have these conversations with people um, that aren't in public. So they can tell me like, Hey, I actually didn't like that you featured a profile on this because of why. And I can respond with, well, here's my reasoning. And, and we can have these conversations that aren't like, you're wrong and I'm right. And it's just like a good place. <laughs> it's a nuanced conversation that's so rare on the internet. And it allows you the opportunity for a long form discussion instead of like a quick take on Twitter where someone's breaking you down. Um, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that you, that I had to talk to you about was the five traits. The five traits is uh, something, you know, you said you have five daily behaviors that have drastically improved your life. And, and you also now I believe do five traits or five things that you need to do every day. But here on this tweet, you said, getting eight hours of sleep, eating healthy meals, exercising for at least 30 minutes, consuming quality content, and going on an evening walk. Are those the same five that you do every day today? Um, and yeah. talk a little bit about that. I do still do those five. Um, I think the eight hours of sleep is the one that I need to like get better about. Uh, but yes, and, and now I've added, I'm using this app uh, that just tracks my habits. It's a free app, um, but I have a few others on there. So the 30 minutes uh, exercise, do yoga, that's a separate one, meditation, no alcohol and eight hours of sleep. Um, so, oh, sorry. Oh no. Okay. Sorry. I thought I pressed something and it went away. Um, so yeah, so I tracked those five things, but they're all kind of the same thing, right? Like to me, I tweeted that because those are all things you can do with no money. Like you don't need money to go Mm. on an evening walk or to sleep eight hours. I mean, of course, if you're working three jobs, it's probably impossible. And I understand that, but, um, I, I believe in, doing something that's aspirational. So maybe like right now I I can't dedicate enough time to exercise for 30 minutes a day, but if I have it in the back of my head, maybe like instead of sitting here and being on the phone, sitting in a chair, maybe I can just walk around the office or walk around outside or something like that, that doubles as Mm. yes, I'm doing work, but I'm also moving my body. Um, I just, I think in this like new COVID world, we've become glued to our computers and our phones and our chairs and we're not moving. And that can, I mean, a whole bunch of like health uh, issues, but also like it doesn't promote creativity. Uh, Aaron Sorkin says that when he's working on his best work, he's out of his chair, he's moving around. One time he broke his nose because he was so excited about like his writing. He was reading it out loud. He like lunged into a mirror. Like that's the type of passion and excitement you want. Um, And you can do it with anything. Yeah. How do you balance being in front of your computer all the time? And that's your job. That's your work with also getting out. I I have to put it in my calendar. Like I have to make time for it because otherwise it fills up. Um, For example, in the morning, I go on YouTube and then there's like this 10 minute yoga thing. And so I do 
10 minutes of your, it's literally 10 minutes. It's no more. That's fine. I've like checked that off. And it's the first thing I check off in the morning. Then there's like meetings or calls or whatever. And then around noon, I'm like, all right, I got to go on a run or a walk. Maybe I go on a walk to pick up lunch and then I walk back. But like I pick a further place a little bit further so I can actually walk. Um, Doing little things like that because I and, and then if you don't move, you can't fall asleep. And then your eight hours becomes four hours. It's just, it's a whole cycle. So you just have to like, make sure that you're spending enough energy during the day to help you at night. And then if you sleep enough at night, you'll have more energy to exercise during the day. You mentioned before about how, when you came to Bulgaria or when you came to America from Bulgaria, you saw the world differently. And now I believe you're living in Miami, whereas you were living in New York just a year ago. So how has that new environment shaped and seen, how have you seen the world differently from the new environment? The reason I like when people visit, especially from Bulgaria, like when my relatives visit is because you get to see everything from fresh eyes, right? Like, because living in New York for the past, like five or six years, I was used to walking around, not even like looking up. Like I was just like, how do I get to my dry cleaning? Um, when I first moved, I was like, whoa, like that's so crazy. There's trash on the sidewalks. Like I was fascinated by everything because I didn't have that in Atlanta. When we moved from Bulgaria to the to Atlanta, uh, I mean, there was so much different that I can't even explain because um, I mean, everything, <laughs> everything was bigger. Like even McDonald's uh, in Bulgaria was like a really nice restaurant. I had my sixth birthday there. It was like a very nice, nice event. And then we got here and it was like, oh, you like McDonald's? Like, I was like, yeah, that's, that's the best place on earth. And then you go and my mom, for example, noticed that uh, when you get a coffee, in Bulgaria, it's espresso. So it's a tiny cup here. It's like this ginormous thing with a straw. And she's like, what is going on? Those little things shape. Um, it, it's just, um, it's just the newness of it. Uh, and I hate, I actually don't like when you get used to it. I try to find new things to notice, um, all the time because that's how ideas spark. For example, uh, New York was New York until COVID hit. And when it first hit, the first time I went outside uh, to the grocery store and I looked around and I was like, oh my God, all, everything is shut. And a lot of these places are actually going out of business. Immediately that sparked an idea. I was like, oh, well, I wonder how these small business owners are doing and like what they're thinking about. So I went and I interviewed them and then I published it. But like, you can't get new ideas if you don't notice new things. It's just, everything's the same and it's boring and it's horrible. But the, the reason I say that is because the the greatest gift and blessing for me moving from Bulgaria to Atlanta, Georgia, <clears throat> is that I got perspective. And perspective in that I was born in a different country. We came here as immigrants. I got to see people who didn't look like me, people who didn't believe in the things I believed in. I lived in that. Then I moved to New York City. Again, a new environment, people with different beliefs. But I understood for the first time how you can have different bubbles and how those bubbles never talk to each other. And so to me, I don't judge people based on like, oh, they're just like Southern idiots or whatever, because I know their perspective. Like I understand why they think the way they do. And I also understand why people in New York think the way they, they do. So for me, like perspective breeds empathy. If you travel to new places, if you meet new people, if you actually make friends with people who don't see the world the way the same way you do, you get so much empathy. When you say bubbles, what exactly do you mean? Like, for example, um, people who say, I cannot believe that so-and-so voted for Trump or Biden or whatever. I understand. I, I am <laughs> very well aware why it happened, how it happened. I, I wasn't as shocked as some people would be. Mm. You know, it's, it's different lives. It's different cultures. It's, it's like, um, it's a whole different like prism on the world. Unfortunately, I so wish, I so wish that some of the people I know in Georgia could hang out and become friends with some of the best people I know in New York, because that intermingling of ideas could actually like create change versus them just screaming at each other. 
how do we do that? How do we start to bring together people of different uh, backgrounds and ideas and bring them into the same arena? I try to do that with the profile. I try to do it with the Sunday newsletter when I include long form profiles of things I know will piss some people off. I'm like, great, let's bring it on because it promotes ideas I know they vehemently disagree with. But once you read the whole profile, you get a small sense of empathy for that person if the profile did a good job of explaining why they believe what they believe. Then on Wednesdays, I publish dossiers that are of wildly different people. You have David Goggins on one end being like, you go and you do one thing every day that sucks and you're in pain and you suffer and you get through it. And then on the other end, you have somebody like Cheryl Strait, who's like, you know, maybe you, you set a challenge. It's difficult, but you realize like you need empathy for yourself. You need self-care. You need to slow down. Those are people on very different spectrums. But the reason I like Uh, featuring their stories is because it could open your mind to a new idea that you never considered. And hey, like if you're a David Goggins, like enthusiast, and then you read Cheryl Strait, which by the way, Cheryl Strait was one of the most popular ones. You're like, oh, wait a second. I never saw it from that perspective. And I think, I think that's what I try to do. I try to like give you when something's like you're reading it, I try to show you like, hey, by the way, there's like an under underside of this thing. And then look at it from the back and the front and on top of it, like you see things from a different perspective. And that's all I aim to do because I I think people change their minds based on, they, they have to change their minds. I can't come here and scream at you until I change your mind. You have to read something, learn something, or um, hear something in a certain way that just like sparks that within you. And you're like, you know what? I, I get it now. I have more empathy now. We've been talking a lot about the profile and I have to bring up The Rock tweeting out <laughs> and, and, and creating a storm around you in some way. What was that like? What was The Rock sharing your work on such a massive scale like? He created such a storm that after this interview, I'm going on Bulgarian television. <laughs> No. So it's, I mean, like, whoa, first of all. Um, so I was, here's, here's the backstory to this, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs and writers will find a, a small grain of like lesson in this. I write these dossiers every Wednesday. I've done more than 50 of them. The Rock was someone I really wanted to learn more about. The problem was that my dossiers are typically super practical. So I have techniques that are very, very practical. People can take away lessons from. When I finished writing The Rocks, it was good. I liked it, but it wasn't enough practical things in there for my liking. I thought it was just more motivational and inspirational than practical. So I was like, eh, I'm not, I I like it, but it's not my best work. So I was like, I'll save it to publish it on Christmas day when like people are at home, maybe whatever. So, (laughs) which was, which was, and this is what I learned. You cannot plan success because what happened was um, Christmas day or Eve, I Public, I, I tweeted it and I tagged The Rock. I don't know why I tagged it. The Rock, I just, he has a Twitter account. I tagged him. He has 15 million followers on Twitter, 220 million on Instagram. So I tagged him on Twitter and I said, oh, I wrote about The Rock. I did a profile, whatever. And he responded. And not only did he respond, he read it. He liked it. He tweeted four times about it. Then he shared it on his Facebook and to his Instagram followers. And I was, I mean, I, I was like mind blown because first of all, I didn't know that he did his own social media. Second of all, I didn't know he actually read the like mentions. And third of all, like what an amazing surprise. Um, but uh, David Perel has this idea where he talks about um, vehicles for serendipity. Everything you put out into the world, writing a podcast, a book, like anything that you publish publicly, um, you don't know whose eyes it's going to get in front of, whose email it's going to land in. You just never know. I never thought that my profile dossier of The Rock would land in front of The Rock. Um, and so so, he, so that's the thing. Like, uh, you you can't plan for success. And sometimes, like, the most but, – but, but you can make it easier for yourself by – 
tweeting and tagging the person you're writing about on Twitter or forwarding it to his team and saying, hey, I wrote this about Melinda Gates. Like maybe you want to check it out. Sometimes just taking a small initiative like that can help increase your luck. Who was the first person you called when The Rock tweeted out your stuff? Um, I was... I was on a walk on Christmas Eve, I believe it was, with my dad. Um, so for an hour, I wasn't looking at my phone. And then I looked at it and I was like, the hell? I, I thought it was a joke. Like I had to, my, my friend goes, are you sure this is not just a man named Dwayne Johnson? I was like, let me check. <laughs> so, like it was that uh, surprising. But the first person was my dad because he was right there. And then uh, Anthony, my husband, I called him. I was like, is this, is this for real? Because I my phone was blowing up. It was insane. <laughs> How do you guys deal with, you're talking about Anthony Pompiano, who also has a huge presence and has had a bunch of successes in the past month or two months as well. How do you guys celebrate success? That's a good question. Um, so, okay. Uh, in terms of when something like big happens, uh, and, and I learned this from Nick Saban, actually, I thought it was an interesting way to put it. Nick Saban wins a lot and his team wins a lot. Uh, you know, a championship here or there is not anything new, but for the players themselves, it's a huge deal for Nick Saban. He's done it a hundred, well, not a hundred, whatever, 17, whatever. I don't know the number, but he's done it a lot of times. He tells his players, you should celebrate, take 24 hours, celebrate, be so happy, but don't forget that like, you're going to have to come here and do that again. Because I think the biggest thing that prevents future success is complacency and focusing on past results, right? You become complacent. You're like, I have the best newsletter out there. I don't care. The rock just tweeted it. Yes. But like, what are you going to do next week? I can't just like drop it all and be like, that's it. I'm done. Um, so what we do is um, like, so those everyday walks I talk about, we always go on a walk and just like talk about what happened that day and why it was great. And the other thing that I think um, is awesome is Sarah Blakely says that when she was growing up, her dad would make the kids go around the table and everybody shared what they failed at that day. The reason that's so powerful is because by sharing what you failed at shows that um, you took a risk and you went for it, even if you fall short. But if you're not taking any risks, you're not going to fail, but you're also not going to succeed. Um, so like, that's something I'm trying to integrate. Like when we go on a, a, a walk in the evening, um, I'm like, all right, well, like, I'm really excited about this, but like, how do I continue the momentum? Um, and I think the celebration is just that, like sharing it with another person, but knowing that there's more to do instead of just like swimming in your success. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's interesting because I think winning can be distracting in the sense of when you're losing, you have nothing to do but the work. But when you're yeah. winning, everyone's congratulating you and you're getting texts from all these places and you're like, I'm the shit, I'm, I'm awesome. Mm -hmm. And then you stop doing the thing that got you to the place to win. So fascinating how that works out. And it leads me to ask, how do you deal with losses? Yeah, oh my God. I mean, so many things like uh, I've tried, I mean, if, if you've been a profile reader since the very beginning, since 2017, I've tried so many things that like didn't work out and that's okay. Like, you know, um, I always, I always think about it this way. So when basically if something doesn't work out, it's not that you failed, it's that you gave up on it. You're like, you know what? It's not even like, I'm not going to continue. Um, the, the example I used was I played soccer in high school. I wasn't the best player by any stretch. Um, I was like, I could have been much better than I was. But then if I look back now, I'm like, that was a total failure. Like I played for two years and like, we didn't, we didn't uh, win that much. But, but I'm like, okay, but is it because I was objectively bad or is it because I wasn't that passionate about it? I didn't want to learn and spend the extra hours at practice. And so I didn't get better and I left it alone and I gave up and I just forgot about it. Therefore, is it a failure or did I just give up? Um, that's how I look at it now. Like, is something a loss or was it just, I tried it. It didn't really have that much traction. So I was like, you know, I, I'll, I'll table that for now. Um, that's how I try to frame it because 
I mean, tr- true failure. Like, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think if you notice, the stories that I like to include in the profile are stories of success, massive failure, redemption, and then maybe again, massive failure, and then like they succeed again. It's the people who are able to bounce back that are the most interesting to me because the people who succeed and never have any problems, uh, they're not interesting. And the people who fail uh, and just swim in their failure and complain about it all the time, those aren't interesting people either. I'm interested in the people who found a way to move forward in times where it was like, how on earth are you going to move forward? Stephen Hawking being the perfect example of that. Imagine you're 21 years old, you have this girlfriend that you hope to marry and they're like, you have a few years left to live. Stephen Hawking went on to marry his girlfriend at 23, even though he started to decline, He lived another 55 years and used his brain to contribute to society. Like, it's incredible. And those are the stories I'm drawn to because they're not stories of perfection. They're stories of redemption. I think that it it represents who we are. Like, if you look at someone and, and you say and you see them as perfect, that's just not a human being. That's just not who we are. So, yeah, I love that. And I'm going to now ask you a question that I asked you yesterday or two days ago. I, of, <laughs> I, time doesn't exist, Danny. Time does not exist. <laughs> so I asked this question on Clubhouse and you you were like, oh, someone else take this question. The question is, what is the highest leverage activity in your day? And I remember you were like, oh my God, like I can't, I, I don't have no idea. So I'm wondering getting, if you thought of it. I kept getting flustered in that chat because I was with uh, Dan from Trapital and James Clear. And uh, the way it was like structured, I always went first. So I didn't have time to think about my ideas. So I was like, I don't know, somebody else take it and then I'll come (laughs) back to it. Um, So the highest, so here's here's the thing. Um, And we already kind of talked about it, but I think it's those tiny moments. For me, it has been taking the extra five minutes to send my work to somebody who could uh, who could get it to the right person or in front of the right person, or like, um, for example, Business Insider, like we now have a syndication deal, but it's because I got in front of the right person. Mm. It, things for me in my life, very rarely have things just come inbound. I've always just been like, all right, what can I do? Who can I tag on Twitter to make sure that I disseminate my work in a way that like, helps me get lucky. Um, mm. Somebody, um, uh, the founder of Supergoop, I'm forgetting her name, but the founder of Supergoop, um, she was once, uh, she went to a trade show and she was supposed to be with like all the cosmetic brands on the, the second floor, except for somehow that didn't happen. She was stuck in like the, the bottom floor with like, it, it was something that was not relevant to her at all. It was more of like environmental and sustainability brands. And so she was sitting there and she was like complaining about, oh, like, I can't believe it. But there was this woman next to her and she started asking her questions and they were chatting. And then it turned out that the woman who was next to her in the booth was the founder of Burt's Bees. And so they, she helped her get distribution everywhere and introduce her to all the right people. So I was listening to this podcast and the host goes, wow, well, that was so lucky that she was next to you. And she was like, was it lucky or was it that every chance I got, I talked about my product? So I think Mm -hmm. like a lot of times the the highest leverage thing I do on a daily basis is talking about the profile, tweeting about it and sending an email to someone who I think like, even if it's like, hey, can I interview you? You'd be surprised how many people say yes, because they're tired of all of the traditional media and they want to work with somebody who is an independent creator. Do you have those things? Like, do you check them off daily? Like, oh, I tweeted about this. Oh, I sent an email to someone. Is that something you track or no? I, I don't track it, but I have it. So for example, I know every Wednesday when I publish a dossier, I always ask my question, who is this relevant for and where should I send it? Um, mm. Melinda Gates, I published last week. I sent it one of, 
the people who works who work at her venture firm subscribed to the profile. So I forwarded it to her and I said, hey, like, check it out. Let me know if Melinda ever wants to do an interview. Those things take so little time, but have massive upside. So why not do them? Um, and so, yeah, I for me, it's like a mental checklist. Every Wednesday, this comes out. Who am I sending it to? When you talk about like outreach to someone, how do you approach someone you've never spoken to in any way before? What types of things do you say and what type of advice would you give to someone who's doing cold outreach? Yeah, I, uh, as someone who worked in journalism for a very long time and people pitched me all the damn time, I uh, have realized that what I liked receiving was very short emails. Keep your first email super short. You can always follow up if they're interested, but nobody wants to open a cold outreach email and read like 10 paragraphs. What I do is I say, hey, I'm Paulina. I have the profile. Here's what the profile does. Um, I thought your work on X was interesting. And I think uh, it, uh, my readers would really benefit from what you have to say. Here's why it makes sense for you. And like, that's it. Just, you know, if they're an actor trying to get into business, the profile has a bunch of uh, business entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, like financial journalists, you probably want to be in front of that audience. So I think um, not selling yourself short and actually saying like, here's why you would benefit from being on my platform. um, That's that's the key. Short to the point with a relevant link and you're good to go. What type of advice would you have for someone who's just starting out, let's say in the content game or, or journalism, what type of advice are you telling that person? Uh, uh, first of all, read SPJ's code of ethics. I think uh, we would all benefit from reading that. Um, I think so. Okay. So if you're, a writer of any sort, I would always say like, I think it's good to have something for yourself to write something under your own name versus a big company or a big publication. You could be a writer at Ernst and Young. You could be a writer at Fortune Magazine, or you could be a writer at, you know, a startup. I think it's good to have your name attached to a, a company like that. But if you genuinely enjoy writing and creating something, you should start something that starts as a hobby and then maybe leads you down a different path, whether somebody else interesting sees it and wants to hire you or whether you want to turn it into a business in the future. I just, the biggest and best advice I have is make sure that you optimize for optionality and don't pigeonhole yourself into one thing. It's really interesting because you, when you first were figuring out do I want to work for the profile or do I want to work for fortune? You said, Oh, fortune sounds much better. So that's one of the reasons why I won't. But then I believe your husband said, well, because you own it, then it's something that no one can take away from you. How did that go down? Yeah. Oh my God. So I I call this, (laughs) I call this the seesaw of misery where you wake up in the morning and you're on a high and you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to quit my corporate job and I'm going to do my own thing. And then you go to sleep and you're like, are you crazy? Do you not understand the value of benefits and health insurance? So, um, (laughs) so I was on this seesaw for a long period of time and uh, Anthony was like, I'm not going to listen to this anymore until you just like do a pro and con list of like what, you know, would pro is to like, uh, why I should leave and con why I shouldn't. So my con list was an absolute joke because I think a lot of times when we're in our heads, everything seems big and important. When you write it down, you're like, LOL. Like one of my things was I will disappoint people. Who the hell cares so much about Paulina's life that they will sit down and genuinely be disappointed that she left her job to start the profile? Uh, no one. The answer is absolutely no one. So, but, but you have to see it as an objective human to understand the ridiculousness of it. Because when you're in your head, you're like, okay, yeah, but like, remember my professor from college who said, this is the best job that I'm ever going to get? Who cares? Anyway, so um, so one of the things was, yeah, but like, you know, Fortune, writer and editor at Fortune Magazine sounds really important. And when I walk into a room, there's instant respect. I'm like, important. People are like, ooh, there's a reporter in here. And like, 
That's such a superficial thing, but I think a lot of us stay at jobs and hold on to things like that because we're scared of what lies beyond that. Um, I learned this after college when I, so, so basically Anthony said, there is nothing more powerful than tying your identity to your own name because you can always lose your job, you can use, lose your relationship, you can lose your status, your wealth, your home, you can lose it all. But at the end of the day, you cannot, nobody can take away your name from you, right? So if you build a good brand that, that's solid, then you are in full control of that. Tyler Perry knows that. Oprah knows that. Um, because when they walk into a room, nobody's like, Oprah, what do you do for your day job? And she, because status, like she doesn't identify with I am a TV show host who does this, whatever. Um, but I think I learned this after college because I, the second I graduated with no job, I realized, hold on a second, I have nothing to wrap my identity around. So when I'm at a party and somebody says, what do you do? I don't know what to say because I don't know what I do. <laughs> I do nothing <laughs> at the moment. Um, and so I, in, in, in college, it, all your life, it's super easy because even if you've got nothing going on, people are like, oh, so what do you do? And you're like, I'm a college student or I'm a high school student or I'm an intern or I'm the editor of my college paper. All those things signify a purpose, a, mm -hmm. a status thing. And, but, but when you, um, but when you like grow out of that and you realize like, oh, wait a second, my name should, should hold power in and of itself, which I am guessing the reason you named your podcast after you is partly because of that, because you gain confidence from your own name, not from something external. That's exactly right. And you started working on this, the profile full time, right when quarantine happened in, <laughs> in the middle of March. And I remember seeing that and being like, wow, that's crazy. She just left her job like in the craziest time and the most uncertain time in the history that I've lived, at least, that's crazy. So what? how did that feel from your perspective? It was so bizarre because um, I started thinking about possibly leaving in January. So the, by the time I actually made the decision and put in my like two weeks notice was March 1st. It was the first week of March. Again, COVID was, it was there, it was around, but it was not like, oh my God, COVID. So um, I was still going to the office, like everything was relatively normal. And so then my last day was March 20th, which was the first day of like lockdowns everywhere. And I remember being like, uh-oh, <laughs> my biggest. So um, in terms of uncertainty, one of my other like big uh, considerations was, well, what if I leave and like there's a recession? So mm. again, in my head, that was a big like risk. And now there was not only like possibility of a recession, there could be a possibility of a depression and this virus and all this stuff. So, um, so I, I was just like, you know, I, I, it was so much uncertainty. I think my brain kind of like was like, I feel fine. It just like, it clicked on a different station. I was like, I can't handle this. So I'm going to feel calm. Um, but it was mm. funny because whenever I talk to people and they're like, so you quit your job. Wow. Um, well, I'm lucky I still have my job. And I was like, yeah, no, I, I get it. <laughs> mm. But it was this like un, unspoken, like, what are you going to do next? But as we now know, people had a lot more attention and time to dedicate to high quality content because, I mean, Tiger King came out at the beginning of the pandemic, like all that right. crap. Once you were done binging that, you're like, okay, I can't do it anymore. How do I feed my brain high quality information? Yeah. What were some of the things you leaned on to remain calm and to remain level-headed in the face of complete uncertainty? you're one of those people but like for me when I make a decision about something there is no going back I I may like do the wishy-washy like should I do it should I not once I make the decision I'm, I'm done so there for me there was no like oh my god maybe I should uh go back and ask fortune to take me back or find a new uh job or whatever for me the way I mitigated risk and uncertainty was okay what is in my circle of control right now? And in my circle of control was growing the profile and producing high quality content, which would then lead to paying subscriptions. The second thing was I could freelance. I could reach out to people and say, I will write, you will pay me money. 
The third thing was I could do a licensing deal, which I did. I did two of them. Somebody would pay me for my existing content. I would give them my content. They could republish it on their website. Um, I could do, um, what else could I do? I could do advertising sponsorships on on the newsletter. So all these little different revenue sources by diversifying my revenue streams, I was able to be more comfortable that I wouldn't, if one dried up, I wouldn't lose all of them. When I was at Fortune, I had one uh, income stream, which was my salary. If I lost that, I lost everything. So I think the way I stayed calm was like, don't worry, even if it do- if this doesn't work out, I am happy to do something else. Um, I don't have a big ego of like, oh my God, this didn't work out. So I'm just not going to work anymore. I, I think, or like, I'm just going to give up on everything. I think, um, I think that uh, for me, like just knowing I, I gave myself six months. Basically, I said, I'm going to focus on the profile full time for six months. If I get get it to a point where it matches my salary at Fortune, then I will pursue these other paths and kind of um, uh, uh, split my attention a little bit more. Like I will go freelance for real. Like I'll report articles for other places where they'll pay me a lot of money. But I wanted to dedicate, I wanted to give the profile a fair shot by dedicating 100% of my time and energy into it for a period of time. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things that we've mentioned in this conversation a bunch is high quality content and the importance of cultivating a high quality Mm -hmm. content diet. When I say that, I actually think of you because you've made that so synonymous with your own brand and with yourself. So what are some of the ways that people can start to... start to look for and find high quality content as opposed to a low high, a low quality. junk food junk food junk, content. exactly yeah exactly um it's the same thing like you you see a candy bar you know it's bad for you like you see an article a gossip column on tmz you know it's bad for you um the, the, the problem is that, okay, so people misconstrue this and say, well, Paulina, I can't spend my whole day just like reading very serious, long reported stuff all the time. That's not what I mean. What I mean is do a content audit of all the information sources you consume on a daily basis, right? Like, for example, when you go on Twitter, have you curated your feed to bring you good ideas? Or have you curated your feed to bring you gossip columns? There's a same platform, big difference. Have you, um, you know, have you curated your, the, the friends that you, you hang out with and the people that you surround yourself with? If you surround yourself with people who only want to have surface level conversations, that's the types of ideas that are going to be in your head. If you have a diverse set of friends who come from all different places and have different ideas, you're more likely to uh, basically expand the way you think and your perspective and develop empathy. Um, But so content is not just restricted to like books and articles. It's restricted by like everyday conversations. Um, And uh, for example, uh, when I was reading about Frank Abagnale, he said like, they're like, how did you turn your life around? Like you were a con man. And he was like, well, first of all, <laughs> when, when he went to prison, the FBI offered him a job. Like we will shorten your sentence if you come work for us and help us find fraud and whatever, because he was so good at it. He said, you know, there's just something about 12,000 really ethical, moral people surrounding you, other FBI agents, that makes you a more ethical person. So like the environment you put yourself in, uh, the TV shows that you watch, Netflix, Clubhouse, you and I could go on Clubhouse, we could have totally different conversations and ideas put into our brain. You could listen to one about like, how do I make my podcast much better? And I could listen to one uh, with Patty Stinger about how do you, uh, how do you find like, rich men. Like, I think that was literally the topic the other day. So it's like, you can, cho- you can choose what you consume. And if you're, the problem is many of us are not intentional about it. Therefore you become a passive user. And by being a passive user, you are letting other people put their own ideas into your own head against your will. I love it. Polina, what is the future <laughs> for the profile, where do you see the profile going in, let's say two years? What does the profile look like? So I don't know, that's the truth, but um, 
the the promise that I've made to the reader is you'll always, always, always find high quality content here. I think something I've been thinking more about is what you mentioned earlier of how I've like created a school for myself. Um, I want to do, I've been toying with the idea of like a profile school where it's like, um, you know, in school, I wasn't the best student of history because I just couldn't freaking remember anything. Um, but I couldn't remember it because it wasn't memorable to me and I didn't have an emotional attachment to it. When you tell me about World War One and like what happened, I, I, I can't. I, I just can't remember dates, whatever. It doesn't stick with me. But if you show me World War One through the eyes of my great grandmother or the eyes of some uh, of, a, of a soldier or whatever, if you show it to me like that, I can basically uh, World War One. I. I was talking about World War Two, whatever. Um, anyway, see, this is this is how bad it is. But basically, these events, you if you look at it through the eyes of different people, you can better um, it. it um, your emotions trigger your memory. So if I can be emotionally invested in this person's life, like I mentioned, I think I talked about this on Clubhouse, but in 50 years when kids are learning about COVID, you could present COVID as very factual, science-based. You could only talk about like, here were the numbers. Here's how many people died. Here's what happened. How many people lost their jobs? But until you show how it, it affected all those people totally differently. It may have affected me differently versus you versus a mom with two kids who just lost her job. So I, I think like I want to help people learn some of these like lessons and ideas through the eyes of real people, because I think when you form an emotional connection with somebody, it allows you to better remember it and try it in your own life. I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Polina. I really appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you if they want more Polina in their life? On Twitter, I am Paulina uh, at P-O-L-I-N-A underscore Marinova, M-A-R-I-N-O-V-A. By the way, fun fact, I used to have at Paulina on Twitter, um, but I was in college and I was stupid and I was like, oh, I already have MySpace and Facebook. I do not need another <laughs> another social network in my life. So I deleted it and then somebody else took it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that will be in the show notes. You guys should all check out the profile as well. It's incredible. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Shane. That was my conversation with Polina Marinova Pompliano. Thank you for listening. From the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate it you taking the time out of your day to listen to this. And please give me feedback for this episode at Hey Danny Miranda. If you made it this far, I appreciate you tremendously. And I'm so, so grateful for you. I'll see you guys in the next one. Peace.